Hello and welcome to the Have We Got Planning News For You podcast series. My name is Charlie Banner and I'm a member of the panel of the show, which is made up of five senior barristers who specialise in planning law, who came together at the start of lockdown last year to inform, entertain and most importantly help raise money for charity. We've never charged the show, but we've always encouraged viewers to make a donation, either to the NHS Combined Charities page or other charities such as Shelter or Local Charity of your choice. You'll find details on our website. Enjoy the podcast. Good afternoon and welcome to Have We Got Planning News For You. Thank you very much indeed for joining us once again. Welcome as always to our YouTube viewers. Please don't forget to subscribe to our channel. And please, of course, consider making a charity donation in place of registration free. We support NHS charities together and shelter. But if you'd rather donate to a charity of your choice, that would be equally great. Now, the uh, the big news in the planning week, uh, apart from, of course, our, uh, our dress, uh, or at least Mary's and mine, <laughs> is, uh, is, of course, um, the inclusion of a planning bill in the Queen's speech. We still don't have really any details beyond what was in the white paper. But what is clear is that following the uh, public consultation, the government's decided to press on with, amongst other things, a new local plan regime that does away with the existing uh, local authorities' duties to cooperate. Now, what does this mean for strategic planning? Do we need strategic planning? Do we need some regional direction to make the system work? Well, who better to help us through these issues than the strategic planning supremo, Katrina Riddle, uh, one of the best-known leading experts on this subject. Katrina, welcome. Can you tell us um, where uh, you're calling from? Uh, what theme have you chosen to justify Mary and me addressing uh, uh, <laughs> as we are? Uh, and what are you drinking this evening? I am sitting in a little village. Lots of people would say it's a suburb, but I call it a village of Thames in Surrey. And we've got some uh, interesting neighbours around here, including Dominic Rab lives just down the road from me. Um, I am <laughs> choosing tonight, uh, and I think that the theme is fairly obviously from a background, but I've got a little bit of a hand as well. Uh, for those that know me, I like a little bit of 80s pop, so uh, we'll have a little bit of an 80s theme, hopefully. Um, hopefully, the, hopefully we'll have some music as well, some 80s music rather than the, the rubbish you played at the start. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we're trying to get Brian May on the show actually um, well I say trying to get Brian May more than I probably revealed more than I should have done there we had a seriously uh, almost heated discussion on, on WhatsApp last night about whether you'd have said 80s pop or 80s rock um, and uh, I think Chris was desperate to turn up in, a, in some, some spandex or something like that but, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll leave that to the imagination um, and what are you drinking Katrina? I am drinking um, a little bit of Scottish Harris gin, uh, and these bottles are very nice lights afterwards, they make very nice lights, and I'm drinking it from my Isle of the 80s mug. Amazing. So, not very classy, I'm afraid, it should be in a nice gin glass, but it, it <laughs> suits, suits the theme. Fantastic. Well, welcome. And we're really looking forward to our discussion. Chris is going to lead the discussion with you in the second half of the show. Um, please... Uh, dear viewers, do do post any questions you'd like us to pose in the Q and A. I think there's at least a couple already. Um, and of course, Katrina, if there's anything that um, we're discussing, I think I think our cases about travellers and caravan parks probably don't raise any strategic planning issues. But if there's anything of interest, do chip in before the discussion. Now, um, Mary. How are you? In I'm very well. I've, your Jean-Michel Jarre hat. I've, I'm <laughs> wearing my, 
I'm wearing my Jean-Michel Jarre hat. I have got my Depeche Mode oh, T-shirt oh. on. I've got some albums here, but the one I really like is the Steve Miller Band. Do you remember? Uh-huh. Abracadabra. Gonna <laughs> <laughs> reach out and grab you. So, sorry. I, I, I was wearing nappies back then. <laughs> oh, stop showing off. Stop showing off. No, anyway, Mary Cook, Town Legal. I am in Bristol. I'm in a lovely office building in Bristol, owned by a company called Origin. And I'm mm-hmm. doing a planning inquiry with another company called Origin 3. And I have to say a, a big thank you to Crispin, who has helped Mar- Marcus, who's helped me with the, uh, the get up. Um, doing an inquiry down here. And the thing I've noticed in the news this week is the PINS update following the case, the Hertfordshire case that we discussed last <coughs> week. PINS mm-hmm. uh, issued uh, an update um, indicating that um, sadly there will still be no accompanied site visits for a while, no news on in-person events, but at least confirming what we, 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 we knew to be the case, which is that that ruling doesn't apply to inquiries. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Mary. Uh, now, Paul, I'm... I'm- Gutted. I got a text from you saying I've been hunting around the house, waiting memorabilia, about to go into the attic, into the box which Ursula has labelled Paul's crap. Don't open unless divorced. Oh, where's your where's your poodle hair? <laughs> Live magic. I love it. Wow. Is, uh, uh, from Queen, nineteen eighty, uh, eighty five, eighty. No, sorry, eighty six. Eighty six. In the attic, my wife won't let me put it on the wall. And if we're talking about nonsense, we've got Peter Gabriel's show. Oh, we've got yeah. Marillion Misplaced Childhood. We've got a bit of Phil Collins down here. We've got uh, a bit of Rainbow, a bit of Invisible Touch. Oh, we've got the worst, a bit of Pink Floyd. And tucked up there, yeah. it's not strictly 80s, but it's just 79. Uh, a bit of Bat Out of Hell. Ah, and that's in, in memoriam of, of the, uh, the writer. And I'm reading The Hacienda by Peter Hook, How Not to Run uh, a Nightclub. <laughs> and, and to be clear, and to be clear I, I, I'm sure that my son, whose band it is that provides the music for the show, won't be offended because today <laughs> the Ruby Tuesdays announced their tour dates for later on this year. Amazing. The Ruby Tuesday are touring live. Everything else is just window dressing. Facebook.com slash Ruby Tuesdays. Um, Chris, I was expecting to see you in all pink, like in the okay. white show. I'm now, disappointed. I've let the side down, haven't I? Uh, but uh, uh, I, I'm impressed by our vinyl collections. I've uh, I've got vinyl as well. I want you to try and guess the album and the artist. Okay, who is this? You know what that is? Pass. Look at the guy with long hair. Cut. Cut. The police. The police. That looks very much like the police to me. Oh, yes! Mary Cook. Yes. <laughs> yes. Simon yes. Ricketts is going to like that. Synchronistic. Hang on, that's not the only one, though. That's not the only one. What is this? This is tricky. What's that one? Anybody recognise that? Oh, Talking Heads. No. Good guess. Not quite like that. UB40? Frankie goes to Hollywood. Oh. Uh, okay, this one's easy. Charlie might even get this. Charlie might even get this. <laughs> that's Madonna, isn't it? Like a virgin. <laughs> last gig I went yes. to, on the fifteenth, twenty twenty. Oh, absolute classics on there. Okay, very good. Um, uh, Presumption's been listening to my music. He doesn't think very much of it. He's been watching a film. Look at that. Ha <laughs> ha! Brilliant, epic. Isn't that the best film of the eighties? 
I am drinking in in honor of Katrina. I am drinking a drink that makes me think that the world could be a better place and we could have regional planning. But for now, it's just Wonderland, okay? Because <laughs> that's about as close as it's ever going to get, uh, as far as I could see. That's a good um, big and country. And I can do my inquiry. Sorry, say that again. The good big country 80s song, Wonderland. Okay. Yes, that's very true. Very good. Very good. Um, I've just finished the third week of my inquiry uh, and we had Harold Stevens as the inspector. He's just so charming and uh, and quite funny and really enjoyable uh, inquiry. And I had a funny thing today. I did a cost hearing in which I was defending my own costs that Secretary of State was refusing to pay in respect of a Section 288 challenge. You'll all know when we do a high court challenge after we've done an inquiry and the Secretary of State's turned it down, we do most of the work. So, you know, we're doing a lot of the drafting and everything like that. So I was there to defend my own fees, but it went well. So I'm quite pleased and I quite like the Secretary of State to pay soon. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. I'm, for some reason, I'm, I'm, my mind is immediately drawn to the Aarhus Convention, the prohibition on prohibitively expensive costs, but I can't think why. Um, anyway, Charlie Banner here from Keating Chambers. I am wearing a, my Rolling Stones t-shirt. I know they're 70s rather than 80s, but they are the classic rock band. And I am wearing a uh, leather jacket that I, I acquired directly from Bon Jovi, the band. It is uh, their Lost Highway Lost Tour. It's signed by Tico Torres, David Bryan, the much missed Richie Sambora and John Bon Jovi himself. Annoyingly, when I bought this, um, I, I bought, um, I'm between medium and large size in the UK. And so I said uh, large on the form, but it's an American large size. And it's, it's absolutely massive. Charlie Banner. <laughs> Charlie Penny, you are never a medium to large on any size. So it's, it's, the, it's about twice the size of me. So um, I'm just going to have to eat a lot of pies in the next 20 years and it might finally fit. So at the moment, it just sits in my cupboard here. And I'm going to take it off in a moment. Um, and I'm in Chambers and, and I'm drinking Heineken Blue, unfortunately, very boringly, because I've got to drive uh, back home uh, this evening. Um, now, let's get on to the case. Of Hang Shazam. on, you've just forgotten oh, Sasha. Is. You missed Sasha. Sasha. Yeah. Yeah, Charlie. I'm, I, I remind this reminds me of when you when I had the pleasure of leading you. You forgot about me. <laughs> <laughs> well, apart from when you get delivered the most immortalizing cross examination, which is not suitable for, for before the watershed. <laughs> anyway, lovely to see you all. I'm sorry I've been legging it from deepest Hampshire to get here, so I'm here. All's well that ends well. Lovely, jubbly, great stuff. Well, let's go straight into our first case. Um, Curzon Park and Mary you're going to tell us about certificates of alternative development. Indeed, uh, indeed I am so let me just uh, there's a bit of a run-up to this um, uh, which is an explanation of what a certificate of appropriate alternative uh, uh, development is a CAD for shorthand and it's a means of applying to the local planning authority to seek a determination as to what the land could be used for if the compulsory purchase order did not exist. And its purpose is to identify every description of development for which planning permission could reasonably have been expected to have been granted on the valuation date if the land had not been compulsorily purchased. And it's important because when compensation is assessed, it must be assessed, it must be assumed that the planning permission for the developments in the, the CAD certificate were in force at the valuation date or would with certainty be in force at some future date. There were four adjoining sites being compulsorily acquired by HS2 for the purposes of constructing the Curzon Street HS2 um, terminus in, in Birmingham. 
four different landowners, four different valuation dates, and each of them applied for a CAD certificate for mixed-use development, including a PBA, purpose-built student accommodation. Now, in the real world, the cumulative effects of the proposed adjoining developments would have been a material planning consideration, but Birmingham City Council considered each of the CAD applications in isolation. And a preliminary legal issue was taken by the Secretary of State uh, to be determined by the upper tribunal about whether the, on the application for the uh, CADs, they ought to be taken into account the other CAD applications or grants as if they were planning decisions or material planning uh, considerations. So, so that was the sort of um, starting point in the tribunal. And the tribunal agreed with the landowners that the CAD applications were not material planning considerations and that there was no statutory basis for treating them as national planning applications, as the Secretary of State for Transport had argued. So the Secretary of State for Transport uh, sought and was granted permission to appeal on the basis that this was raising a point of uh, importance on the principle of equivalence, which our eagle-eyed listeners will know is the principle underpinning the CPO code uh, that a landowner should be no worse off and no better off in financial terms after their land has been acquired by compulsory purchase. The Court of Appeal upheld the, the Lands Chamber decision that applications for or grants of the CADs were not to be treated as notional applications for or, or, for, or notional application for planning permission or as material planning considerations. The Court of Appeal um, departed, however, from the Lands Tribunal's view and agreed with the respondents that it's an inevitable consequence of the cancellation assumption that no CAD applications on other sites could have been made, with the effect that the issue of the CADs on different sites must be entirely disregarded. Now, all of that is, um, took quite a while, actually, and the consequence of all of this, so it's taken over a year for the Court of Appeal to rule on this preliminary issue. So those poor old landowners are still waiting for their compensation to be assessed. And I'd like to give a shout out, if I may, to my wonderful fellow partner, Raj Gupta and Paul Arnott at, at Town Legal because they acted for the landowners. Thanks, Mary. Um, we're on the subject of CADs. Paul, over to you. <laughs> what oh, extraordinary sweet of you, Charlie. I do love you. Um, right, my case involves uh, a case in Sefton. Um, Sefton Ooh. against the Secretary of State uh, and Do Doherty as the interested party. If we can bring the front page up. Uh, that's fantastic. Uh, this is a, a case involving a, uh, a, a, a gypsy issue, uh, a traveller's uh, site adjacent to a village called Melling, which is between Magol and Aintree. And most importantly, Melling uh, was founded in the 6th century AD, it turns out. And in the 1400 years that have occurred since the 6th century AD, there has been one interesting person that's come from Melling. That interesting person is Will Sargent, who was the lead guitarist of Echo and the Bunnyman. There we go. Ah, very good. Chap on the left-hand side, consistent with our nice 80s theme. However, the important thing about this case uh, was uh, that the claimant was represented by Piers Riley Smith of Kings, the defender by Sarah Reid of Kings, and the interested party by Michael Rudd of Kings. So it was a chamber's do. But of course, it, on this show, 
We do everything without fear or favor in relation to anybody. We don't advertise at all. There is no advertising <laughs> relation to this. So, um, but the, the argument was that there was a decision, uh, a grant of permit, sorry, a refusal of planning permission to to put six caravans on a, on a field adjacent to the village of Melling. Uh, that was refused by the planning authority who then served two enforcement notices. Those enforcement notices were appealed successfully and quashed and granted planning permission occurred on the uh, section 78, which occurred. That was then challenged by Sefton, who argued that when you look at Greenbelt issues, this society in the Greenbelt, that you have to identify each of the material considerations and then give substantial weight to each and every element of Greenbelt harm. And then you have to add up all those substantial weights uh, and then see if they're outweighed clearly, including the definitional uh, harm by the benefits. Court said, oh no, that's not how you do it. It's not mathematical. It's not a forensic examination like that. It's all about the overall judgment. Uh, and it's a, a real irony when I see Sarah Reid acting for the defendant when Piers Riley Smith was her pupil. I know how terrifying that is from the first occasion I was against uh, Mr. Justice Andrew Gilbart as he ended up. Um, so it's a fairly straightforward case. It's an application of simple principles. And the, uh, the final throwaway line from uh, His Honour Judge Eyre QC sitting as a High Court judge is it's all a matter of planning judgment as if we didn't know. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. Um, I'm next up, and I'm going to tell you about a case called Corbett and Cornwall. No, not that Corbett and Cornwall, um, the one we covered um, a few months ago about compliance with the plan as a whole, but another case also involving the same Mr Corbett, as far as I can tell, uh, and the same Cornwall Council, but a different um, site, a different planning commission, and a different judicial review. Um, this case um, concerned a planning commission, which was itself small scale and not especially interesting, um, uh, I suspect of you, it's a single dwelling and a garage in the grounds of a larger house. Um, but the issue in the JR, whilst narrow, is of, of wider importance. Um, it concerned the proper interpretation of a development plan policy, policy two of the Cornwall local plan, which restricted uh, unallocated uh, development outside the settlement boundaries, subject to certain exceptions. And those exceptions included um, development of previously developed land immediately adjoining the settlement. And it was those words immediately adjoining the settlement that were in issue. Um, there was no dispute here that the site was PDL because it was garden land within the curtilage of a dwelling outside the built up area and by virtue of being outside the built up area, not subject to the garden grabbing exclusion from PDL. The issue uh, was whether it was immediately joined the settlement. And the reason that was an issue was that the, the site and the settlement were physically separated by a road. And the new house would be separated from the settlement by that road and also a, a driveway leading to the house. Um, now, Mr. Corbett said this meant it couldn't be considered to be immediately adjoining because there was that severance. Uh, members of, of the council disagreed and voted by majority, nine to five, to grant permission. Um, and uh, Mr. Corbett brought to JR and said uh, that they had misinterpreted the uh, policy. Uh, Mrs. Justice Jefford, a, a former member of Keating Chambers, uh, rejected uh, this uh, claim. Uh, having studied the dictionary definition of the term adjoining, um, she found that it was a wide enough definition to include concepts of next to or very near, um, that the word immediately didn't add anything to this, didn't mean it had to be even closer. And therefore, she felt that it was for the local authority to decide as a matter of planning judgment whether the site and the settlement boundary were sufficiently proximate to be immediately adjoining. Now, um, as I say, the case on its facts it is really rather uh, localised and, and not particularly interesting. Um, and uh, however, it's of some wider importance because the words immediately adjoining aren't uncommon in, in planning policy. Um, 
either in policies such as this relating to development outside but very close to settlement boundary or in other sorts of contexts. And so the judgment is informative of what's meant by adjoining in the planning context. It's also a notably concise, easy to read and user friendly illustration of the court's current approach to interpreting planning policy. And as such, it's, it's quite a useful, informative read for, for non-lawyers wanting to get a feel of the court's uh, approach. And I commend it to you for that. So that's it in a nutshell. And now, um, Sasha, um, you're going to tell us about the Oakley Residential Park appeal. I, I am. And I'm going to also tell you what a caravan is, Charlie. <laughs> um, yes, I, I've got, I came to the planning bar to see the world. I'm doing a caravan park site in Essex. Um, and I won't allow any Essex jokes, being a man of Kent. Um, but no, anyway, what I'm going to talk about is this was a proposal to change 50, sorry, not 50, I apologise, many more, 140 free caravans, which had conditions imposed on them, restricting their occupation to holiday use. And um, there was, effectively, this was a proposal to turn those 140 free caravans from holiday use into permanent residential occupation for the over 50s. And as we can see, the, the great Philip Ware, very, very good and experienced inspector, was the inspector in this case. And effectively, he found against the application and the appeal, as you can see from paraphrase, the appeal was dismissed. And he held, effectively, the context is tilt of balance wasn't in play. Secondly, there were quite strong tourism policies in the development plan that sought retention of the units for holiday use and also he came to the conclusion that the off-site contribution from affordable housing that was offered by Oakley Residential Park was not acceptable. So overall the, the key takeaway from that is don't underestimate the power of tourism policies particularly in the context of holiday caravans. Thank you very much Charlie. Thanks Sash. Um, now Chris over to you to start our interview with Katrina. Yes, thank you very much, Charlie. Good afternoon, Katrina. I um, think that everybody probably knows that you are the leading expert on strategic planning and regional planning, but that doesn't come just by accident, does it? Because you were involved in the uh, Southeast plan um, and all the progress uh, that that made. And then obviously 10 years ago, uh, that all came to an abrupt end. But um, just just remind us, please, the work that you were doing before the wonderful idea that the government had to abolish regional strategies. Just, yeah, I'm not sure I'm, I'm, I'm sort of the leading expert as opposed to the sort of last woman standing or last man standing. <laughs> <laughs> Being sort of one of the last few strategic planners left. So it's a small field, so it's quite easy to be an expert. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, my, my background is all strategic planning. I was in Surrey County Council for 16 years and, and ended up um, leading on the Surrey Structure Plan. Then they abolished Structure Plans. So I ended up going to the region and then they abolished regions. So I decided it was safer to work for myself. Um, and, you know, and, and I, I, my view was, and interesting, you talk about gypsies and travellers when they're... When, when strategic planning went in the guise of regional planning, I knew it had to come back at some point. So I spent a couple of years or more working on um, helping local authorities deal with gypsies and travellers and also get, get involved in uh, minerals and waste planning. And a big shout out to all the minerals 
and waste planners out there, they are the unsung heroes and they always get forgotten about. Uh, I don't think there was any mention in the white paper of minerals or waste planning. So, so yeah, so I've spent a long time trying to bring some form of strategic planning back and working with local authorities who, who feel the same. Yeah, well, we've got a question from Martin uh, Milmore, which I'm going to ask you a bit later about, about minerals, because we, we don't always cover that. Uh, and um, it's an important issue. Um, okay, now I haven't met a professional planner who doesn't think that regional planning and strategic planning is, a, is anything other than completely necessary. Um, and the entire audience here will believe that it's necessary uh, the joined up coordinated approach, et cetera, et cetera. We don't need convincing. It's others who clearly need convincing. However, what might be said is, look, last year we delivered more homes in this country than we have in the last 30 years. And 20 of those years have obviously been with regional planning. So what would you say to the critics who say, well, we don't need regional planning because we're delivering more houses that may not be minerals but uh, certainly delivering a lot more housing now than we have in the past why why do we need regional planning i think that one of the one of the misconceptions of strategic planning regional planning and planning generally is that it's all about housing and strategic planning so much more than that and you know it's the interface between national and local it's about dealing with some of the really big issues around where growth goes and that includes housing but it also includes everything else that's needed around supporting economic growth it's about the big bits of infrastructure it's about dealing with some of the big issues around things like climate change as well so it's it's about dealing with sustainable growth in all its facets not just about housing I mean I think one of the the real disappointments in the current system is it has become just so much about housing and you look at the communities the new communities that are being prepared is a really good example yes it's ticked the box in, in, in terms of numbers but we're ending up with a whole load of new communities of about two or three thousand size in the middle of nowhere because they're being done at a very, very local level. They're not being done on that sort of strategic spatial scale. So, and they're not necessarily being, houses are not necessarily being delivered in the places we need them. You know, you look at the, the problems around London, the problems around Birmingham. So yeah, the numbers might stack up, but that's not good planning. Uh, and, and strategic planning is an essential bit of good planning. What does, what does it do? What does it deliver um, that, not proceeding with strategic planning you know in other words what how does it deliver benefits tangible benefits it delivers well apart from just looking at the the sort of the wider things that go with good placemaking so it's it's about delivering making sure that growth and the sort of the economy is looked at in a holistic way it's about joining up communities as much as individual communities one of the big challenges we've got is in two-tiered areas, which still cover most of the country, most of England. Uh, so, you know, so county and district. So county and district. Yeah. And in some areas, we've got unitaries in the mix in this sort of spatial geography as well. And they've all got very different roles. So strategic planning has always been a way of making sure that all the, the functions that counties do, particularly around infrastructure and transport, are joined up with what the, the districts do in terms of their planning role. Um, so it's it's and it gives you just that bigger spatial canvas. And I think that's really important instead of districts, quite often small districts looking to accommodate quite a lot of growth in a very small area. It gives you that sort of broader spatial picture to look at different options and, and look at where the best place is, not the only place. 
to deliver housing and growth. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, you mentioned Birmingham there. You know, Birmingham, without a regional strategy, is Birmingham's unmet need, which they, you know, they used to have in the 1960s and 70s. I grew up in a new town uh, as a product of Birmingham overspill, as they called it. Now we don't have a regional strategy, so we have Birmingham's unmet need for 40,000, but nothing's been done about it. Nothing's been done about it for years. So Mm. without that, um, I am talking about housing, obviously, but um, without that, you you, you just don't have any coordinated approach and it's being passed around. And and another one, I mean, I acted for a consortium of 10 house builders and, and developers in the West of England, and the West of England grasped This is the Bristol area, the greater Bristol area, Somerset, South Gloucestershire. They grasped the nettle. They went ahead with a strategic plan and all eyes were on Bristol to see if that would work. And it failed. Um, So, I mean, why why do they fail? Why not? Not everywhere. We're going to come on to some success stories. But why is this failing to work? And of course, we are not calling it regional planning. We wouldn't dream of doing that, would we? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you're right. West of England authorities were really progressive. They were trying to do something that that gave a better outcome. I think the problem is, and the the two fundamental problems, one is we're trying to squeeze a strategic planning system into a local planning system um, that's not fit for purpose. You know, the, the, the testing process and everything else is about the first 10 years, deliverability, hitting the housing numbers. It's not about long-term visions and all that goes with that and transforming areas, which is what the West of England was trying to do. I think that they failed, apart from some sustainability issues, I think fundamentally they failed because it was seen as stitching four local plans together and not one big planning area and trying to look at different options across that planning area. Greater Exeter, failed because of the other reason that this is not working and that's and I'll come to that every time in a question it's about the decision making you know whether it's a, a sort of spatial development um, strategies prepared by combined authorities or joint strategic plans there's not one single decision making body so every time you have to make a decision on the plan it has to go back through every single one of the individual authorities to get sign off and Greater Exeter joint plan failed because one of them at the last minute decided they didn't like what was happening and then they, it all fell apart. So unless we sort that issue out and the governance and have one single accountable body for strategic planning and making these big, big decisions in the interest of the greats are good, then, you know, the system's not fit for purpose. I, agree. I couldn't agree with you more that it's trying to do something at a strategic level without the infrastructure in place. And we had a chat yesterday and I was really interested in your observation. You're very embedded in this system. You know the people. And your observation was a lot of the civil servants who worked on regional planning in the regional offices and, and in London, they've all gone. They've all, they've all gone because their job finished. And so we don't have the government structure to support regional and strategic planning, um, which was the point you were making yesterday. Um, I think that's, I think that's, I mean, that's right, isn't it? They have, they have largely just left their desks and there's nobody to do that. Yeah. And, you know, when, if you don't have the understanding at a sort of central government level, then it's really hard to get across to central government how, important strategic planning is and and I think it's become also a much bigger issue because you've got so many different departments effectively dealing with strategic planning issues but not in an an integrated way 
Um, and I think the, the other disconnect is the way that the government agencies work as well, you know, Highways England. So if, a, if an authority goes forward with a really good plan, they think they've got it all sorted, they get to an examination. And, uh, you know, Highways England or Network Rail or whatever, environment agencies say, no, we don't like it, and it all falls apart. So yeah. until we get much better understanding at a government level about what good strategic planning looks like, we won't yeah. get a good strategic planning system. Yeah, well, let's move. We're moving around the country, aren't we? Let's move to Greater Manchester. And, um, you know, the, the 10 became nine as Stockport bailed out. And um, that has been a very slow moving story. It is. Uh, I, so I've been advising Peel, who have a lot of uh, skin in that game. It's not just you, Paul, that advertises. <laughs> just kidding. Surely not. Um, and, uh, and in terms of that, what you can say about what's happened in Greater Manchester, well, at least it's keep going. Well done, Howard Bernston. Well done, Andy Burnham. But it's so slow. Is that the problem of regional planning? That it just ends up being as slow as the lowest, the slowest, you know, participant, mm. and then they bail out Stockport, and then it just seems really slow. Is that the problem of it? I think I would argue Greater Manchester was never a strategic plan. It might have covered a strategic area, but it's a detailed local plan where they were going to allocate sites and everything. And if anybody's done a local plan jointly with two or three authorities, to do it with 10 authorities is pretty much impossible. My understanding is that they, they did that instead of a spatial development strategy because they wanted to change green belt boundaries and you can't do that. I, crazily, you can't do that through a, a spatial development strategy um, yeah. through a combined authority. Right. But you're doing just too big a job um, there. Strategic plans should be high-level investment frameworks. They should be about aligning where you're going to put growth, where you're going to put your housing, and how you're going to align all these different things around infrastructure and everything else, um, You know how you're going to align it, and also where you're going to put your money. Um, and that's what the joint strategic plans uh, like West of England and, and there's three remaining of them, South West Hearts, uh, South Essex and Oxfordshire. That's what they're trying to do is keep a high level an investment framework, which, again, just does not fit a local plan testing process. Yeah, I mean, we're talking so about a whole series you know, of Good luck to them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're talking about a whole series of casualties here. It's not a happy story. One story that is perhaps more positive is the Oxford-Cambridge arc. Um, that seems to be progressing. Now, they have the good sense to take your advice and the scoping of that. Um, and that's been a success story. You, you were directly involved in scoping the projects, as we said on the post. So what are the necessary ingredients to make a strategic plan and a strategic strategy work like it appears to be with that corridor yeah i mean i'm really pleased the government are playing this what the way i think it, it should be played and i think the first issue is that governance that decision making and, and the government has taken that decision that they will be the the ultimate arbitrator in this and, and the ultimate decision maker and i think that's a good thing. Um, I think it is about having a high level framework and they're not going to do too, too, do too much. So that allows them to do it quicker, much quicker. It's not part of the strategy de uh, development plan. And I think that's where RSS's regional spatial strategies went wrong. The government put it through a statutory development plan system and that's why it sort of got caught up in all the machinery that goes with the legislative framework and everything else. Um, 
might have been great for the lawyers, but not so good for people that wanted a quick result. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that, so get, get, get the investment right, keep it high level, keep it grounded in sort of what, what, what is sensible at that level. Keep it at a sensible geography. And that's a really important point as well. You know, regional planning is a form of strategic planning. Strategic planning happens at, on different spatial geographies. And actually, in history, it has always happened in combination at a regional and a more sub-regional scale. They have to work together. Um, and I think with this, the, the geography, I, I always call it the Goldilocks principle. It's got to be big enough to be able to capture national priorities and deliver that sort of interface between the sort of local and national. But it's also got to be local enough to capture what's happening on the ground and the differences that are happening on the ground. And structure plans, people always say, oh, well, you just want structure plans back. But one of the reasons structure plans worked was the, the scale of geography. It was you could scale up and deal with big issues, you know, and my case in Surrey, um, you know, we scaled up because we worked with Serplan to deal with the greater London area, but we could also scale down to focus on areas like Heathrow and growth around Heathrow and things like that. So getting the spatial geography right is really important. And then the final one, I think, is where I hope the, the framework, the Oxford-Cambridge um, ARC framework goes, and that's sort of preparing your delivery plan alongside the strategy. So having a high-level vision-led framework, but actually having some idea of how you're going to deliver it and who's going to deliver it and where the money's going to come for it, at least for sort of 10 years. And too often, even with local plans, we leave that bit to, to the end. So when you do get into an examination process, there's questions still around what you, how you're going to do it. And you've got the high, Highways England and others sitting around the table saying, sorry, it's not one of our priorities. You have to think again. Who's driving, if you don't mind me asking, who's driving the Oxcam arc? Uh, where's the driving power behind that project? It, there's a debate to be had there because I think when it was first published by National Infrastructure Commission, it, it was sold as being a little bit about green growth and the driver of the economy and everything else in there for a national priority. But I do think it was much more um, about housing numbers and actually boosting, significantly boosting the housing numbers around London um, and taking some of the heat away from the Greenbelt areas immediately around London. Um, and, I, and I'm not saying that's not one of government's drivers. I'm sure that is still one of the drivers. But I think the local authorities, because they really proactively engaged with this, most of them, not all of them, I won't mention Buckingham, I'm sure, um, <laughs> have engaged proactively and have tried to get the government uh, to move away from it just all about being housing numbers and, and being about proper spatial planning where they're delivering good growth across the arc area. And um, so I think the local authorities, all credit to the ones that have been involved so far, you know, they have managed to move the sort of the, the, the incentive and the drivers much more away from it all being about uh, a million new, new homes and a shiny new expressway, yeah. which is also gone. <laughs> I noticed the government moving away from the million homes, but I have to say that did grab attention. You know, it's the first time I've ever seen a million homes being talked about. And um, in that arc, I think the, the universities are quite powerful, aren't they? I know that uh, Paul acts for um, uh, one particular university or college in that area. I've acted for them as well. The universities exert a lot of influence in that area, don't they? They do, and, and, I, and I believe they're big landowners right across that whole they area, are. which you can't ignore. So they've got a vested interest. But they're also, you know, huge um, 
uh, you know, they, they have a huge potential in terms of uh, jobs in that area and the right types of jobs that the government wants. So there's an argument around how much that growth across the arc is really part of the levelling up agenda. Um, you know, the argument is if you get the arc and, and the economy right and uh, for the national economy, that has benefits for the rest of the country. But uh, I think there's still a bit more to play around that, uh, you know, see exactly what that does mean in terms of the spin-offs that the northern yeah. part of the country will actually get as a result of this. I definitely think that arc is about a kind of replicating Silicon Valley and trying to get where all the brains are. You mentioned yesterday more postgrads in Oxfordshire than than actual undergrads, uh, which is impressive. Um, all those science parks and and so on. Um, okay, now um, the slightly controversial: the Tories abolished regional planning to get themselves elected into office in two thousand and ten. I remember Caroline Spellman saying, "We're going to abolish them." God bless you. When Conservatives <laughs> try to promote growth now, as in Oxfordshire, Guildford, Uttlesford, all true blue areas, they find themselves ousted by a coalition of anti-growth parties. Um, some might say that's poetic justice. Um, but is delivering growth in NIMBY England just too difficult? I mean, is that the problem, really? Um some areas go for growth and then suddenly they find all their councillors are gone. I noticed you commenting about the loss of some very progressive councillors in Oxfordshire, for example, at the county council level. I mean, is it just like a catch-22? We just can't do it because this is England. We've done it so well in the past and we keep forgetting this. And, you know, one thing that, that I think the government needs to do is just look at how we did it in the past and not try to start again with the clean sheet of paper because there's some really good and bad um, examples of the past and one of the things when we when localism was introduced they devolved all the risk financial risk political risk all the risk down to individual local authorities who you know it just takes a couple of changes in politicians through elections and most of them have elections every single year for it all to topple over so strategic planning and decisions around where growth is going to happen, housing numbers have worked in the past where there's shared risk, where there's um, a lot, you know, more than one local authority taking these decisions. And yeah, it requires good leadership. It requires leaders to stick the head above the parapet. And, you know, more often than, than not, they'll get shot at some point. But having some form of strategic planning and the governance that goes with that puts a barrier up and to sort of protect them to a certain extent. And when Eric Pickle said uh, he's going to famously, you know, I'm going to get rid of this blame game, the blame game worked brilliantly. You know, when, when we were in the in, in doing a structure plan in the county, the, the government dictated the housing numbers and the county council blamed the government and then carried on with the structure plan, divvied it up to the 11 districts. The 11 districts blamed the, the, the county council. But that whole debate then disappeared and they managed to then move on and work positively and proactively with the communities to shape that and to make sure that they got the best out of that. So the blame, the blame game really worked in strategic planning because none of the decisions that are being made are easy decisions. They're all really hard political decisions. So you need to have a structure that protects local politicians and allows them to make brave decisions without losing their seat. Um, and, you know, that, that will never go away. There will always be councillors who do do that and who end up losing their, their, their seat on a council. 
But we've seen that far more over the last 10 years than we ever did under a system where we had effective strategic planning. I I couldn't agree with you more. And I have to say, I mean, I don't I don't know why the government is so weak about this, frankly. Uh, If you don't take your housing, you're not getting your budget for education. You're not getting your budget for highway improvements. You know, the government could flex their muscles and uh, these NIMBY parties would be ousted out because they'd end up costing, you know, there'd be, there'd be an electoral impossibility of having schools closed because they just wouldn't take the houses they should take. Now, the white paper, everybody's interested in the white paper. We're all getting very excited and it was all going to tell us everything, um, only it didn't. And the government uh, finally conceded, didn't they, in the white paper that uh, the duty to cooperate doesn't work, like as if we didn't know that. Um, <laughs> And they suggested no alternative. So nine months later, we had the Queen's speech and um, no alternative again. Have you heard anything? We're all desperate to know. Have you heard anything? Is there anything that's being talked about by way of an alternative? I would love to say yes. Um, (laughs) I really, really, really would. I'm an eternal optimist. Um, I'm hoping that um, the reason that there's nothing in the Queen's speech about the sort of duty to cooperate or what will replace it is because they're going to go down a non-statutory route so it doesn't have to appear in um, legislation. So maybe they're looking at what's happening in the Oxford Cambridge Arc and thinking this might work elsewhere. And the other one is the levelling up in, um, white paper, whether there's going to be more in that about strategic planning. Although my concern is I'm not sure the same people that are preparing the levelling up white paper talk to the people that prepared the planning reforms. So you know, you do need that integration again at the national level. So um, I I hope there are really good discussions going on internally within government about what will replace the duty to cooperate. Um, But I haven't heard anything. Okay. Okay. Well, that that segues nicely into what I think is the million dollar question that is going to be put to you by Mr. Charles Banner. Well, the question is, is, is there a workable alternative? to the duty to cooperate? And if so, what is it? Yes, there's a workable alternative. Um, And uh, I did some work for the County Council Network um, as part of the planning response to planning reforms and Planning Officer Society and some others fully endorsed that because we used... We used what was already happening out there. We used that, again, at the sort of the practice over the 10 years to inform it. So the proposal we came up with was that you would have frameworks, investment frameworks, strategic planning frameworks, but integrated frameworks with other things, but they would be not not part of the statutory development plan. And they're based, our sort of models based on a lot of work that's already happening out there. So government could move quickly with this, you know, they could just say, get on with it. The trick is the decision making and something would be needed around that. So what we proposed was strategic planning advisory, bodies um, and there's growth boards a lot of growth boards and things so these would be partnership bodies that would comprise the local authorities and importantly county councils where they existed where they were relevant but also potentially things like local enterprise partnerships and some national transport bodies and the growth boards would be uh, sort of an advisory body to government on housing numbers, on um, strategic infrastructure. You know, the government recently asked that question about what do we need to deliver national infrastructure locally? Well, they could play a really good um, role in that as well. And you know, they would also have a role in terms of the future of the infrastructure funds. 
you know, one of the problems with infrastructure funding is it goes off all in different directions. There's no alignment in terms of priorities. So actually they could play a really important role in terms of managing the infrastructure funding um, to, to make sure that it's being used for the right things on behalf of the whole area. Um, so yes, strategic planning advisory bodies. Now, one of the, the critical issues there in terms of legislation is they could operate by Secretary of State saying, tell us who your strategic planning advisory body is and we'll we'll tick it off and say, right, we'll have advice from you. But they could also put it in legislation and make them a statutory role. Um, but the important thing is they would be a partnership. And that's where we've seen the magic happen. There's some really strong strategic partnerships around. But no matter how strong they are, they still find it really difficult to make decisions about where the housing goes, what the overall housing number should be, and other big questions um, because they, 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 they are a partnership and they're not acting as one single body. So the, the solution we put forward for the County Council Network is a workable solution. It's a solution that ticks all the government's boxes in terms of what they need. And it could be done quickly. It could be done now if the government had an appetite to move forward and it would deliver the housing, the local plans and everything else. It would take the heat out of what local planning authorities are in. My goodness, in places like London, around London and Birmingham, if we could move quickly with a solution, then wouldn't that be good for everyone? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thank, you. Thank you very much, Charlie. Paul, your question. Yeah, I, I'm prepared to take advice from anyone who's got uh, the Human League sitting behind their head. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> shoulder. That, that, that establishes your credibility in the, in the first instance for me. Um, yeah, my, my question, Katrina, is really sort of back to the future. Um, when I started in this game, we had RPGs, regional planning documents, that were about three pages long. And they said, there shall be growth in this location, there shall be employment growth at this level. And then it was transcended down to strategic level uh, for the for the dual authorities, two-tier, and then given to the unitaries. And they had to get on with it. And Paul Watson, one of our, our uh, viewers, has said strategic plans provide a political excuse for locally unpopular decisions. So I'm expanding that, including RPG. Now, since that time, since 1997, we've had 24 years of incessant reforms by secretaries of state. Is there any good that's come from that, in your view? Yeah, I mean, I think that my favoured model would be the sort of evolution of the one you described. So it would be regional planning guidance in the, the 90s, which, which went a little bit further than the sort of high level statements of the 80s, because they set out a lot, they, they dealt with a lot more complicated issues and that was needed around some of the big cities. Um, I think the mistake we made was, as I said earlier, going into a statutory system, which RSS did, and it just got a whole load more complicated at that point. Um, but we've just had constant change. You know, we regional spatial strategies, you know, they, they lasted a blink of an eye. They never got a chance. Um, and, and, and let's remember the Labour government reformed them as well in 2008. So they were moving from regional spatial strategy, strategies to regional strategies, which combined the spatial strategies, the transport strategies, the economic strategies. So we just kept on getting more and more complicated and, and it got more and more bogged down. I also have to say regional planning is not an, always the best geography to do good strategic planning. Um, so I would I would argue going back to something, if you were having some form of regional planning, go back to something much more high level, much more sort of like RPGs, yeah. and then have sort of some form of strategic planning at that sort of um, 
local, more local level to deal with some of the, the, the issues and, and how you, you know, things like spatial distribution, housing numbers. Um, and that's the model that we, we've tried to sort of put forward in, in um, the CCN pr proposal, but it's also the model that is effectively coming out of the Oxford Cambridge framework. Um, hopefully, and we'll see hopefully in the summer what that looks like, but I, I think that's the way that that is going um, and it will take us back to a system that is simpler but uh, will deliver at the end of the day. That not only is that good advice, but I'm also going to nick the idea of putting these album covers in into frame. <laughs> Great, thank you for both. <laughs> Very good. Okay, Mary, your question. Well, I'd like to say, first of all, it's just as an observation, it's not all doom and gloom, and I'd like to do a shout-out for Plymouth City Council and Paul Barnard down there, because, after all, they Plymouth, Southampton, and West Devon did successfully manage to achieve a joint um, plan. So that's just one sort of observation. My question is about the joint strategic planning, and I'm picking up a little bit on what Chris Poulton, one of our viewers, uh, is suggesting about a new role for uh, counties, or as he describes, joined up counties. Uh, so, my, so after that run up, this is my question. Should the government be more transparent and explicit in providing national policy uh, and guidance about the potential for joint strategic planning? I mean, you've, you've already uh, uh, outlined some of the difficulties that uh, these other authorities are having trying to squeeze a joint strategic plan into a local plan framework. And is this a potentially collaborative way uh, of working? Um, and, and therefore the answer potentially for, you know, new towns and settlements. Um, so, and should it come from the top in the form of a national strategic plan, do you think, or to guide investment or infrastructure? I mean, that's a perennial question that we, we keep asking. And, and I'm a bit worried about the fact that the leader of Oxford has lost his seat because a lot of... Um, People in Hertfordshire and Essex, as you know, are watching to what, see what happens to the Oxford, um, Oxfordshire JSP. So does that election result spend, spell, do you think, the, um, the end of the Oxfordshire JSP? I, I rather hope not. I, I hope not, mainly because I'm working with them on the <laughs> joint plan, so I hope it doesn't disappear. I mean, I, I've been working, there was five joint strategic plans, um, two have gone, there's three left, and I've been working with all three over the last few years, and, you know, said they're trying to, uh, uh, what's that, square peg into a round hole, and that, yeah. and we have written, the, the authorities that have involved been involved in that, we have written extensive advice to civil servants around how to fix this without having to throw the whole system up in the air. But I think the conclusion we got to was, actually, it's just not going to work. We're trying to do something through a statutory development plan system that is that is too much for that, even if, even if we could change the system. Let's take it out of that, do something that is high-level frameworks that can be much more flexible and resilient to change and deal with some of the really big issues. And again, back to the issue around governance, I think with the Oxfordshire plan, and you know, we think about what happened with South Oxfordshire, there was a huge amount of corralling, I suspect, behind the, the you know, behind the, the scenes with the other local authorities sort of saying to South Oxfordshire, look, you've, you've got to play mm. ball with this. We've worked really hard to get this growth deal. We've worked really hard on the behalf of our residents to do something really positive here. Um, and as, as a consequence, we have to work together to do a joint strategic plan. That's part of the deal. You know, so you might want to walk away 
but you, you can't because we all fail if you fail. And I think that is um, that is a really important factor. But as opposed to sort of a national plan, I mean, I'm I'm not a big fan of a, a national spatial plan because it, I think there's it, there's just even when we did the southeast plan, the variations and the different issues across even one part of the southeast are so great, and I'm not sure you can reflect that in a national plan. I think it's it's, and I also don't think it's it's fair on anybody that has to prepare that to try and do that. You have no engagement with local communities at that level, apart from anything else, and the issues are just too big. So, I, you know, there's some big issues around national infrastructure that could do with more spatial, um, something more spatial attached to them, but I'm not a huge fan of national planning. I think there is a spatial geography that works and lends itself to big decisions and things like new communities. You know, there's no reason why at a Surrey level or a Hertfordshire level or, you know, a, um, a sort of city region level, you can't actually do that um, without a national plan. But, you know, the, the leadership is, politicians, is, it, it, politics is hard and mm. anybody that goes into a leadership role knows that, uh, which is why I said having a governance structure that can put a barrier up and put some protection in there and allow the leaders to make difficult decisions is probably the single most critical issue in getting a strategic planning system right. It's all about the decision making. Sasha, your question. Thank, thank you very much, Chris. Um, I just, if Rob is still there, I've just got a surprise for you. Yeah, I want to show you my Bruce Springsteen shirt. That <laughs> me on the way to Wembley in 1985. Just who's, the guy, who's the guy with the hair? <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> I'm entirely well, focused awesome. on Sasha, looking very hip and cool. Sasha, you look <laughs> love it. You look so hip. Yeah, very love, hip. I love the aviator spell, Joe Biden. Yeah. And there's a swagger. There's definitely a swagger. Yeah. Well, I was on the way to see the boss, so I thought I would be <laughs> amazing. Did he play about? He does about. Last time I saw him, he did about nearly four hours, I think. Yeah, yeah he's an excellent. So, you're absolutely right. He's a brilliant live. Yeah, I've seen him several times. Absolutely right. It was slightly problematical when I got back to my boarding school at two in the morning. But we'll <laughs> now, the question I wanted to ask you was: Do you have any information on um, the white paper? Chris has already touched on it, but do you know? When are we going to see something emerge? We're all on tenterhooks in the light of what the Queen said this week. When are we going to see something actually emerge and we'll know what we're dealing with? Do you know? Oh, I suspect that's probably a question you want to ask your, your guests next week, whoever they may be. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I, I think we're, we're have, they'll have to respond formally to the white paper. Um, they, they have to do that. And um, I'm sure they've finished trolling through their 44,000 Mm. responses all of which I suspect said bring back strategic planning so <laughs> <laughs> it'll be interesting to see um what the response is and, I, and I'm not sure we'll see that this time that, that, uh, any time before the summer um and they'll want to squeeze the legislation into the autumn so maybe August September is going to look pretty busy I mean was the white paper was published what beginning of August last year yeah so we might start seeing some um, something around about late summer um, in order to give them the sort of the the, the go ahead for the legislation um, early autumn if if that if they can fit it in. Um, other than that, yeah, I'm I'm not I'm not privy to insider knowledge. It's interesting. Chris Poulton, who asked one of the questions, I should have said, is one of the 
the good strategic planners left in government, but I don't think he's working in planning. Do <laughs> <laughs> you ever some quick questions from the from the audience? Martin um, uh, asked about the minerals supply running out and the fact we've got. Do you think that's it? I mean, it, what's the answer there? Um, without strategic planning at the minerals level, that seems to be. Um, frankly something that's going very badly wrong well minerals planning is one of the the surviving strategic planning uh, plans you know we've still got a whole load of minerals planners working at a strategic level thankfully mm. and they still operate at a regional level as well they've got regional groups where they work with the development industry as well so um you know that's working really well where it's not working so well is the the link with the local planning authorities so things like safeguarding minerals resources you've got a lot of local planning authorities allocating really valuable sites mineral sites for housing um and real interchanges free interchanges and all that so again okay. particularly in two tier areas that's a really big issue actually um aligning aggregates planning with the with the planning that, that's actually proposing where all the housing's going that needs all the aggregates and Andy yeah. Black asked, is the only way to really solve London's problems um, uh, regional planning for London and the South East? <laughs> well, if that is Andy Mack, as uh, one of my ex-team members, yes, Andy, we need good <laughs> regional planning back and you can come back and work with me. <laughs> <laughs> OK, thank you very much indeed, Katrina, and back to you, Charlie. Thanks, Chris, and thanks uh, hugely for me too, uh, Katrina. Well, that's all we've got uh, for um, for this week, we're going to be back next week, same time, same place. Uh, in the meantime, uh, Eden Mubarak to um, those of our viewers and friends who will be um, celebrating the end of Ramadan this evening. See you this time next week. Thank you again. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, that was the show. We hope you enjoyed it. If so, uh, please do consider making a charity donation. And if you want to watch us as well as listen, the show is broadcast live at 5pm on a Thursday. And it's also available afterwards to view on our YouTube channel. Thanks very much to our producer and IT guru, Rob Newbury of Blue Bear IT. Music was provided with the permission of the Ruby Tuesdays. <laughs>